Uh, you probably have heard it said about someone, and you may have even said it about someone yourself, that they have a one-track mind. Now, what do we mean when we use that expression? Well, I think it's pretty obvious that uh, that person thinks about one thing and just one thing all the time. To have a one-track mind is to be consumed with just one thing. For instance, I know a man who is consumed with sports, and in particular, Ohio State sports, which, hey, if you're going to be consumed with any sport, that's a good one, amen? For instance, his bathroom decor was Ohio State. His watch was Ohio State. He had numerous articles of clothing, and yes, you guessed it, they were all Ohio State. His conversation was dominated by talk of Ohio State football. And as he listens, and I, 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 am, I, 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 I had this experience myself in his presence, so I know of what I speak. As he hears the Ohio State fight song, he gladly and loudly and joyfully sings along. And you could say that he has a one-track mind and say, well, what's the one-track? Well, is that one-track's Ohio State. And normally when we say that someone has a one-track mind, we don't mean it as a compliment, do we? But as we read the words of the psalmist here in verse 97, I believe we could say that he has a one-track mind. But in this case, it is a real compliment to him. Say, so why? Because that one-track mind is on, always on dwells on the Word of God. I mean, look what he says. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. So what was it that dominated his thinking? What was it that dominated his conversation? It was the law of God. It was the Word of God. It was the Scriptures. Now, last week we examined his love for the law, and we learned that you cannot separate love of God from the love of God's Word. To love God is to love his Word, and to love his Word is to love God. And then we asked and hopefully answered the question, how do we increase our love for God and correspondingly for his Word? Well, the answer to that question is by meditating on God's Word, by meditating on God's law. And after he makes this, to, to what may be to some, a, a startling statement when he openly declares his love for the law of God, he goes on and really blows us out of the water. So he declares his love for God and God's word, and then he declares his dedication to God's word. So, well, how does he express his dedication? Well, he expresses his dedication by telling us, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now, if we take the first half of verse 97 at face value, and I don't think anybody would take umbrage with that, 
But if we take the first half of the verse at face value, then we must, if we're going to be fair, we must take the second half of the verse at face value as well. Now, the reason that I bring this and highlight, bring this to your attention and highlight this this morning is for the simple reason it would be very easy for us to discount his words as mere hyperbole. It would be easy to make a, a, rationali- a rationalization to ourselves. It would be very easy to convince ourselves, well, you know, that he was just caught up in the emotion of the moment And so he makes this exaggerated emotional statement. Now, why would we make such a statement like that? To ease our own conscience. To try and get us off the hook, as it were. Well, that was great for him, but that's not for me. Or perhaps we rationalize his words because the guilt that we feel when we see that this man loves God's law to such a degree that he says, it's what I meditate on all the day. But I am thoroughly convinced that he is not caught up in the emotion of the moment, nor is he speaking hyperbolically. He says what he means, and he means what he says. And what he says is that he meditates on God's law All the day, when he says, when I meditate on God's law all the day, guess what? That is what he means. He has so saturated his mind and his heart with the word of God that it has become the guiding light and the driving force or factor in his life. So much so that regardless of what he is doing, he is being guided by the law of God. I believe it was Charles Bridges who said this about the psalmist, he said, when he could not have God's word in his hand, he still had it in his head and in his heart. Now, before you begin to think to yourself that this level of dedication to meditate on the scriptures is simply not possible for you to achieve, and you're... you're, tempted to tune me out for the rest of the sermon and to begin to think about lunch, please hear me out. As I said last week, it would be very easy to read a verse like verse 97, to read verse 97, and let it drive us to despair. But it doesn't have to, nor should it. But I will say that most of us are probably not to the point where we could honestly say, and this is not to condemn anyone, most of us would probably have to say that we are not to the point where that is true of us. That we do not meditate on God's law all the day. But I don't want these words to drive you to despair Rather, I want them to inspire you to reach the same level of love, loyalty, and dedication to God's law that the psalmist had. In other words, make his words a goal to achieve. Make his, take his example 
and set yourself a goal that you're going to reach. And it's a goal that you're going to grow into and to achieve over time. This will not happen overnight. Probably won't happen in a few weeks. Maybe not even in a few months. But over the course of your lifetime. Certainly the effort that we put into it will help us get a greater return. Maximum effort would be maximum return. And the psalmist shows, I really believe the psalmist, he, he helps us out in a tremendous way by showing us seven benefits that he experienced because he loved God's law and he meditated on it all the day. Now, I don't want you to take my word for it uh, that, you know, that he's speaking literally here. So, as I always do, I read several commentaries, and I wanted to see what other men had to say about his claim that he meditates on God's law all the day. So let me give you a sample of that. By the way, just so for knowledge, that phrase, all the day, refers to a unit of time, which includes sunset of one day until sunset of the next day. So it would include morning and evening, okay? Let me start with Spurgeon. Spurgeon wrote in his treasury of David, he, now he's referring to the psalmist, he could not have enough of it referring to God's word. He could not have enough of it, so ardently did he love it. All the day was not too long for his conversation with it. His morning prayer, his noonday thought, his evening song were all out of holy writ. Yea, in his worldly business, he still kept his mind saturated with the law of the Lord. Spurgeon also said this, which goes back to what we talked about last week. He said, familiarity with the word of God breeds affection, and affection seeks yet greater familiarity. And here's, here's kind of what I would like for you to picture in your mind. You ever seen them little, I don't know if they're probably not popular much anymore, but you ever see these, uh, this little thing would sit on people's desk and they'd have a series of weighted balls and you'd pick one up and boom, and it'd just go down the line, boom, 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 boom. It was self-perpetuating, that energy was. And that's what Spurgeon is saying. The more you love God's law, the more you love God. The more you love God, the more you love God's law. As you meditate, it just keeps going, 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 and going. And that's the pattern here. John Goldingay said, The all-day nature indicates how dedicated the psalmist is. He is always reflecting on God's teaching and talking about it. Charles Bridges wrote, this, he said, to meditate all the day means to live upon it with unwearied appetite as your daily bread. Now, what's he mean by unwearied appetite? He couldn't get enough. He loved it. It was sweet to him. It satisfied him. And he couldn't get enough. He was never full of the Word of God. You know, sometimes we have a, a big meal and we say, oh, I couldn't eat another bite. No, he was kept saying, no, bring it on. Bring me the seventh course, the eighth course, the ninth course. 
Bring all the courses. I, I want all that I can get. Thomas Manton, in a sermon on this text, describes the action of the psalmist this way. He said, he did often meditate thereon and could spend the day therein. Manton also said, the words may signify frequency of such thoughts that were not such as did come now and then, but all his day his heart was working on holy things. Finally, Manton said, these words may note the depth and the ponderousness of these thoughts. His mind did not run out upon the law with flighty sallies. In other words, frivolous thoughts. But he had such thoughts as were solid and serious. Now, that's just a small sampling, but I think we can safely conclude from that that the psalmist is in no way, shape, or form engaging in hyperbole. He is not overstating his actions. He has developed such a love for the law of God and for God himself that that was what dominated his thinking. Whenever he had the opportunity, he engaged his mind in thinking about spiritual truth. And if we take him at his word, and we have no reason not to, then his mind was never idle. This means he was very disciplined in his thinking. This means that he made a conscious effort to meditate upon God's law at every opportunity. So here's the question for this morning. How can you and I start moving towards this goal? Well, the starting point is for you and I to make the Word of God a priority in our lives. The psalmist doesn't have to say that to us because he's already said it to us. Say, how so? Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He says, here is the priority of my life. It is the Word of God. Now, let me shoot down an objection that some may have. Some might say, well, you know, the times have changed and the pace of life is so much more different now than it was back then. And what the psalmist did then is simply not possible to do today. Well, if you're toying with raising that objection, please consider this. Most Bible scholars believe that either one of two men wrote Psalm 119. They believe that Psalm 119 was written by either David or Daniel, Daniel of the lion's den fame. So let's just very briefly, what, what do we know about these two men? Well, for the majority of David's life, you know what he was? You know, we think of David, sometimes we think of the shepherd boy. That was just a small portion of his life. And so our minds may run to that. Well, he's a shepherd. He's out there with them dumb sheep. What else he got to do? Yeah, he can think on God's law all day long. Right? But we fail to realize that the majority of David's life, he was king. He was king over Israel. Now, we know from the life of Solomon that he had people coming to him and seeking out his wisdom. Do you think it was much different with King David? Don't you think that he had people demanding to see him and he had these demands on his time? So I ask you, are you King David busy? What about Daniel? What do we know about Daniel? 
Well, Daniel was taken into exile into Babylon when he was a teenager. And immediately, what did they try and do to him? They tried to indoctrinate him into uh, the, the culture of Babylon. But despite their attempts, they were unsuccessful. And we know that Daniel continued to rise up through the ranks of the most powerful empire that existed at that time. He reached almost the top. Are you Daniel busy? Are you David busy? Probably not. It is true that we, we probably do have more distractions than David and Daniel. But I doubt that we have as much responsibility as they did. And here's the good news about distractions. You can get rid of them. You can minimize them. Now, let me, let me give you a distraction for me. And it's, if it's a distraction for me, I'm assuming it's a distraction for others. It's that crazy thing we all carry around called a phone. And there are days, I had a day this week, where I wanted to take that phone and set it in the middle of the parking lot, get in my truck, and run over it 148 times. It's like, would you please shut up? So science your notifications. I do. Put in airplane mode. But that just makes it worse because when you turn off airplane mode and you unscience the notifications, it's like the flood is hit. In order to meditate, we must either control the distractions in our lives or remove them completely. Why? Because meditation takes time. Meditation requires silence and solitude. To meditate well and to achieve maximum value from meditation, we must turn off the noise and shut off the distractions. You, you know, and, and we have somehow convinced ourselves that we've got to have a million things uh, assaulting us at once. Well, we don't. I think it was Thomas Manton who said, meditation is like taking the seed and planting it in the soil so that through continued meditation, the seed grows downward and upward at the same time. And that takes time and that takes patience. Okay. Now, let's go back to the phone. It can be a huge distraction or it can be a tremendous aid in helping us meditate. Say, how so? Most of us have the Bible app on our phones, correct? And what if instead of mindlessly scrolling through so social media or whatever it is you scroll through, you use that time to memorize and meditate on the scriptures? It is absolutely unbelievable to me to watch people with their phones. You know, one of the saddest things that you see, you go out to a restaurant and you see mom and dad sitting there scrolling through their phone and their kid begging for their attention. Put the blessed thing down. You can control that, right? So it's not hard to turn a negative into a positive. Use that phone for the glory of God. If you got to delete Facebook or Bragbook, as my brother-in-law calls it, delete it. If you tweet, stop it. 
What do you think is going to count more in eternity? Your latest post, your latest tweet, or the time you invested on God's word? So, I, I want you to know I'm preaching to the choir. Okay, I'm not just throwing a hammer down on you guys. So what are the benefits of meditation? Let me give you seven of them. Or to, to reframe the question, we, we could say it this way. What happens when you begin to make meditation on God's word a priority? What happens? How do you benefit? Well, first of all, as we learned last week, meditation on God's law increases our love for God. Now, I want you to notice how the psalmist begins and ends this stanza. In verse 97, he begins by declaring his love for God. And the more he loves God's law, the more he loves God. But there is an additional benefit, a, a uh, side effect, if you will, from the time spent in meditation. As you grow in your love for God and God's word, what's this additional benefit? The more he loves God, the more he hates sin. Look at verse 104. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The more he loves God, the more he loves God's word, the greater his hatred for every false way grows. The more he loves God, the more he hates sin. So it's interesting how he brackets this psalm. He brackets it with love and hate. He has an ever-increasing love for God, which in turn results in an ever-increasing hate for sin. No coincidence. You've heard me mention this before, but Thomas Chalmers wrote a little pamphlet. The title is simply, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Say, what's he saying there? The more that you and I love Christ, the more we hate sin. See, many Christians make a mistake when it comes to battling sin. You know what the mistake is? They focus on the sin. And when you focus on the sin, guess what? That's going to be the thing that dominates your life. And despite your best efforts, you think, well, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on this sin and, and how I can overcome this sin, but it seems to be dragging me farther down. Why? Because you have... The wrong focus. The cure to overcoming sin, to battling sin, is your love for Christ. Because the more I love Christ, it naturally follows the more I'm going to hate sin. So therefore, the psalmist has got it right. Oh, how I love your law it is my meditation all the day. Because this is what I focus on. Guess what? I hate sin. I hate sin. So what are the benefits of loving God's law? One, we grow in our love for God. Two, we grow in our hatred for sin. Thirdly, we grow in wisdom. Look at verse 98. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. Now, we've seen throughout our study of Psalm 119 that the psalmist was constantly harassed and targeted by his enemies. But he said, but... But through my meditation on God's law, I have become wiser than my enemies, which simply means he knew best how to beat and handle their tactics. 
He's referring to his enemies who were doing everything they could in their power to distort the truth and to manipulate the truth and to try and use circumstances and turn them in their favor. But he says, you know what? Because I meditate on your law, they can't outsmart me. I am able to see right through them. That's a tremendous benefit, isn't it? When we are under spiritual attack, what do we need to do? Make sure that we're meditating on God's law. How do you develop the skill of discernment? Sadly, many Christians are not very discerning. It shows up in who they listen to. It shows up in the music they listen to. Or it may show up in false beliefs. How do you and I develop spiritual discernment? Well, he says it at the end of verse 98. For your law, it is what? Ever with me. It is ever with me. In other words... The, the scriptures are the grid through which he examines and judges everything. He doesn't take Johnny Mac's word for it. He doesn't take John Piper's word for it. He goes back to the scriptures and says, what do the scriptures say? And they are ever with me. Fourth benefit, he said, I have more understanding than all my teachers. Why? For your testimonies are my meditation. By the way, this word meditate in verse 1 and meditation here, same word. Now, let's just do a little fun little exercise. You may not think it's fun, and I may not at the end of it, amen? But just as an aside, we talked about either David or Daniel wrote Psalm 119. And when that was first presented to me, I thought, heresy, heresy, it's got to be David, it's got to be David. But the author's not identified. If there's one piece of internal evidence that would convince me that Daniel did indeed write Psalm 119, it's right here. Look at it, he says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. So what would lead me to believe that Daniel wrote this? Where was Daniel educated? Babylon. Babylon. And what I believe the author is referring to here is secular teachers. Secular teachers. Godless teachers. So who was taught by the most brilliant minds that Babylon had? Daniel. Daniel underwent that period of indoctrination into the wisdom of Babylon. They were immediately submerged into the culture of Babylon. Remember from our study of Daniel, they did everything in their power to convince them that they were no longer Jews. Now, the flip side is it would be hard to understand though not impossible, it would be hard to understand why David would write these words. After all, he was a Jew. 
He was taught the Torah. He was instructed in the law of God. It would be hard to see how he could say, hey, I'm smarter than those who are teaching God's word. That's getting way out on the ice and it's cracking. It's possible, but it seems more plausible that Daniel wrote them because what do we know about Daniel? He remained faithful to God. He prayed three times a day to God. He knew the scriptures because he discovered through his study of the scriptures that the 70-year exile written about by the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah was about to come to an end. And what do we know about Daniel in Babylon? What do we know about Daniel in exile? He was known for what? His wisdom. He was known for his wisdom. And he repeatedly demonstrated that in Babylon. Now, we can't definitively say, but it's surely something to think about. But let's make a little bit more practical application of this. Students, a Christian who attends a secular institution of learning should keep this verse in mind and remember that if they make a habit to meditate on God's word, they too can say that they have more understanding than their teachers and therefore they have nothing to be intimidated about. You have God's word on it. Preparing to go back to college, preparing to go back to high school, wherever you're preparing to go back to, meditate on the scriptures and you will find over time that you have more understanding than the man or the woman whose wall is covered with degrees. Fifth benefit. When you meditate on the scriptures, you develop more understanding, more wisdom than the aged. Now, that's a common misconception that just because one has gray hair, I don't know who they'd be talking about, amen, but just because one has gray hair or has reached a particular age that they are automatically wise. And by the way, there are some older people who think this and believe this. You know, just because they hit uh, 65 or 75 or whatever it may be, well, they somehow uh, have accumulated all the wisdom of Solomon in everybody else's. Not true. Not true. It should be true, and especially could be true of senior saints, if we can put it that way nicely, if they would engage in daily and continual meditation, but frankly, many do not. Therefore, the hair may be gray and the shoulders may be stooped, but they lack biblical wisdom. And what the psalmist is declaring is that because he loves God's law, and that he meditates on God's law, he has developed more understanding of life, more wisdom in living life than the aged. Ew, old people don't like to hear that. They think, again, listen, I, I, I'm in a geriatric class. I, I get it. But they think because they have lived, in the words of John Wayne, uh, six lustrums, 60 years, that they got it all figured out, that they know the right decision to make and, at every turn. And so they no longer consult God's word. They just draw upon their own wisdom. Listen, nothing could be far. There are plenty of old fools in this world. Plenty of young ones. Plenty of old ones. There's no shortage of fools going around, is there? Why? Because they lack biblical wisdom. 
And the psalmist said, because I meditate on God's law, I have more wisdom than the aged. And the sixth benefit, when you continue to meditate on God's word, it keeps you from evil. Look at verse 101. I, now pay particular attention to how I read this and emphasize this. I, did you get it? I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. Say, what is it that restrains him? Well, it is his love for God and God's law, his love for God's word. He loves God, therefore he doesn't want to sin against God. He doesn't want to disappoint God by his actions. But I do want you to know, and I want to strongly emphasize this, there is a distinct element of self-control in this verse. This wasn't let go and let God. No, he said, I Hold back my feet from every evil way. Why? In order to keep your word. There's an element of self-discipline here. I, I don't approach life unthinkingly. I think about my actions. I think about the temptation that I'm confronted with. And I hold back my feet from every evil way. When confronted with temptation, when confronted with the opportunity to sin, he exercises self-control. He does, as the Apostle Paul says, he buffets his body, which means he keeps his body in check. Now, I want you to notice something else here as well. He doesn't even begin to go down the path of evil. He doesn't even begin to go down the path of evil. Let's say he's walking along and he sees something happen down here. Wisdom says, keep going this way. In other words, he doesn't take a step or two to see what's happening down here. He's, no, I'm not going to do that. You know why? Because the moment you take the first step, the second step becomes easier. And before you know it, you're right in the thick of it. If you never take the first step, if you never make the first click, you don't have to worry about it. I, I, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I exercise self-control. We have a New Testament counterpart to this, don't we? The Lord's Prayer, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, keep me away from the evil path. Lord, direct my steps away from the evil path. I'm not the brightest bulb in the chandelier. Amen? Okay. But I know one thing. You'll never go down a path if you stay away from the path. Okay? He loves God, and he can't stand the thought of dishonoring God by his disobedience. Seventh benefit. When you continually meditate on God's word, it will keep you on the right path and consequently off the wrong path. Very similar to what we just read, uh, talked about. Verse 1 or 2, I do not, again, here self-control. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Now, it would be so easy to focus on the first part of that verse and not feel the weight of the latter part of that verse. Do you see what he says? What is the reason he does not turn aside from God's rules? He doesn't turn aside from God's rules because he learned those rules at God's feet. 
God was his teacher. Now, I don't know about you, if you had a favorite teacher in school or not, but, and frankly, I can't remember many of my teachers. I'm sure they uh, forgot me the day school ended. That's okay. But I do remember one teacher. His name was Mr. Saylor. And it was at Miami Elementary School, and I think I was probably in the third or fourth grade. And I don't know why, but I thought Mr. Saylor was the coolest thing. He was young, and, you know, this, this would be back in the uh, another decade, amen. And uh, he, was, he was young, and I remember going to a teacher-parent thing with my parents, you know, and pointing out, there's Mr. Saylor, there, there's my teacher. And when you have a favorite teacher, you don't want to disappoint them, do you? You want to put your best foot forward for them. You want them to be proud of you. And that's the sentiment that the author expresses here. He didn't want to turn aside. He didn't want to let his feet take him off the wrong path, off the right path, excuse me, because it was God who had taught him. James Montgomery Boyce commented on this verse. He said, when the writer studied the Bible, now listen, very, listen carefully to this, please, listen carefully. When the writer studied the Bible, what he heard in it was not the words of other people, even though they had been used of God to record the revelation, but the voice of God himself. It is God who spoke to him. God speaks to us in Scripture, making the Bible unlike any merely human book. God is a far better teacher than Mr. Saylor. And think about the incredible privilege that we enjoy as Christians. When we pick up the Bible and read it and study it, and memorize it, and meditate on it. We are being taught by God. Our creator comes to us personally and says, hey, let me help you out. Hey, let me show you the truth. Hey, let me correct you. Hey, let me get you on the right path. Hey, I want the best for you. And if we have questions about what we are reading and studying, he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we can through prayer and through the aid of the Holy Spirit, be shown the truth of Scripture? And have you ever thought about this? When you are taught by God, you never have to worry about it being false. You ever have a teacher that led you astray and they'd have to come back hat in hand and say, sorry, you know, that wasn't right. You never have to worry about that. Thy word is truth truth. God will teach us the truth about himself, about ourselves, about his righteousness, about his wrath, his hatred of sin, and his love for sinners. God will teach us about his grace, his mercy, and his steadfast love, and his loving kindness. But this only happens as we make God's word a priority and spend time in his word and prayer and study, memorization and meditation. And as the psalmist reflects on all of this, notice what he exclaims in verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And God's word was sweet to him. You know what that means? God's word was something to be desired. Here's what it means. He wanted God's word. He craved God's word. It was absolutely delicious to him. Now, who doesn't like something sweet? 
All of us like something sweet, right? Now, yesterday morning, Sherry cooked breakfast for the men's Bible study. And one of the many delicious items she made was hot apple fritters covered with powdered sugar with apple butter readily at hand to be dipped in. And old baby, they were good. And guess what? They were all gone. You dirty rascals ate every apple fritter in sight. Why? Because they were a sweet treat that brought satisfaction to a bunch of hungry appetites. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Your word satisfied my, satisfies my cravings. Your word tastes good. It tastes so good, I can't get enough of it. And so he says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And we read a verse like that, and we think to ourselves, that's great for him, but I could never do that. But before you resign yourself to that way of thinking, take the time to go back and meditate on all the benefits, the seven benefits that he experienced in his life because he loved God's law, he loved God, and he made it a regular habitual practice to meditate on God's law. And those benefits are, were not just reserved for him. Therefore, any of God's children who will put forth the same effort, make the same commitment to love God, to love God's law, and meditate on his word, you too will experience the same benefits. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to have understanding? Do you want to be pure and holy? Do you want to please God through your obedience? You can if you will make God's word a priority. You can if you will start today and follow the example of the psalmist. You can if you will make it your goal to one day be able to say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I leave you with this. If you can show me a downside to meditating on God's word, please do, but I don't think you can. We spend our lives on those things that we perceive to have value, correct? There's nothing more valuable than God's word.